0: Hi, and welcome to the first episode of the Brooklyn Symphony Orchestra podcast. I'm Sarah O'Keefe. I'm a violinist with the BSO, and I've played in the second violin section of the orchestra for the past three years. Most of our players are amateur musicians like me, but we do have a number of semi-professional and professional musicians who come to play with us for the fun of it. Like most people who play an instrument, I started taking music lessons in elementary school. I kept playing through college, and when I moved to New York four years ago, I started looking for a local group to play with. That's when I found the BSO. I'm going to be talking to my fellow musicians over the course of this season about why we play, what we love about this group, and the music that keeps us coming back. I'm also going to talk about how an orchestra rehearses and performs, and the history of the music itself. I often find that knowing a little more about how we put this music together and the context of when it was written can make sitting down to listen to it that much more enjoyable. I'd like to start by talking to Nick Armstrong, our conductor and artistic director. Nick, I thought I could start by asking you to talk a little bit about how you came to the orchestra and how long you've been with us.
1: This is the beginning of my 20th season uh, as artistic director of the orchestra. And I came to New York I guess about 28 years ago. I'd been living in Washington, D.C. As you can tell, I'm not exactly from this side of the pond. Mm. But I've been here a very long time. And um, when I came to Brooklyn, and I moved to Brooklyn, actually, from D.C., not to Manhattan. I've never lived in Manhattan, so I feel very proud of being a Brooklynite at this point. And um, looking for a place to play, like you, I found what was then the Brooklyn Heights Orchestra, Brooklyn Heights Symphony Orchestra. And um, the head of conductor, his name was Arturo Delmoni, and I, I... Uh, went and played violin and talked to him and said that I was a conductor and if he needed, you know, an assistant or whatever, I'd welcome the opportunity. And one thing led to another and actually he he moved on eventually to Boston. He's a very fine violinist. I think he's still doing well up there. Um, Very fine violinist. Um, But the conducting spot came open with uh, the Brooklyn Heights Orchestra and I applied. Actually, what happened was not so much an application, but um, they had five people who had applied for the position and one of them at the very last minute pulled out of his slot in the season and i had a friend in the orchestra and he called me and he said we are looking for somebody can you come in and conduct shostakovich and sati and a weber clarinet concerto on a moment's notice mm-hmm. and i think i had i think i had two rehearsals um and they were looking at another conductor at the same time and so the next season there were two of us and then the season after that which was 1995 I was invited to, to, um, to take over the role of the music director of the orchestra.
0: So we have a new season beginning this fall. We did. Um, our 42nd. Um, and the first performance, uh, I should say we perform at the Brooklyn Museum. Our first concert is Sunday, October 25th at 2 p.m. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll be playing three pieces. Uh, Giuseppe Verdi's uh, The Nabucco Overture, uh, Brooks double concerto in E minor uh, for clarinet and viola,
1: it is actually okay. written for clarinet and viola, but we're doing a version that's becoming a little more popular. We're doing a version for violin and viola. Ah,
0: for violin and viola. Um, and Leos, am I saying this right, Janacek? Janacek. Janacek. Hard one of those one of those ah.
1: Central European names you have to get, get your teeth around. And I won't even begin to try and say the name of the opera in, in Czech because it's impossible. It has no vowels in it.
0: We'll skip that then, <laughs> uh, because but the, the piece name itself is the Cunning Little, the cunning vixen, little vixen Suite. Yes, uh, which is fun. Um, so what interests you about these pieces, uh, and, uh, putting them together into one concert?
1: Well, the thrust of the concert, um, this particular concert we have for the last two seasons, been doing a concert that's a fundraiser for a cause that's pretty dear to me. A neighbor, um, whose daughter was very much involved in local politics and who passed away some years back. Her name, the daughter, her name was Hope Reichbach. And she, um, her mother, when she passed, her mother formed a foundation in her memory, and so we've been raising money for this foundation, which is a great, great thing. Um, but that concert has been uh, a, f- a focus of sort of extra extra players coming in, in terms of guests. And for the same concert we did last year, we had a man, his name is Jay Freivogel, and he's the first violinist of the Jasper String Quartet, and they're based at the Temple, at Temple University in, in Philadelphia. Um, but he came up last year and played the Brahms Violin Concerto with us, and it was a wonderful program, great concert. Uh, very popular uh, program, and uh, we had a great time with him. So I thought this would be fun to, to invite him back. And we also love Sam Quintal, who's the viola player of the Jasper uh, uh, Quartet. And so I thought to myself, well, what can you do with a violinist and a viola player? And there's one very obvious solution, which is the Mozart Sinfonia Concertante. But we did that several years back, and I didn't really want to do it again. And I knew of this this Bruch concerto, in Bruch, um, Brooke is a contemporary, more or less, of Brahms, maybe a tiny bit later, and a kind of a second-rate composer. I mean, very much compared <laughs> to Brahms' the second-rate composer, but still wrote some beautiful music. I think, I think many of our listeners might know the Second Violin Concerto, which is the big piece of his. Mm-hmm. But he wrote this concerto late in life. He wrote it in 1911. I think he was in his 70s at that point. Um, he wrote it for his son. His name was Max Felix Brook. Max Brook, another Max Brook. Um, and it got played in 1912. The son uh, premiered it. And then it kind of disappeared, and it really was only discovered again in about 1977. So it hasn't been done very much. Um, certainly we've never done before anything like it. And Jay and Sam didn't know the piece, but they went and discovered it and came back and said, what a, what a beautiful piece, what a great piece for us to play. So we're very excited about doing that. The Nabucco Overture of Verdi is just a great foot-stomping opener, You know, mm-hmm. to, to open a season with, with something that, that's just so rich with rhythm and, um, and excitement and a big tune. It has the team, which is called uh, Vapensiero, which is a big choral number in the opera. And the history behind that is that um, Verdi was uh, active at the time of the Risorgimento, when Italy was kind of making itself known as a nation. And he became a very popular figure in that that, uh, movement. And in fact, the Italian population took up his name as a battle cry. Really? They would shout, Verdi, Verdi. First, because they loved him, but second of all, because the letters V-E-R-D-I, which are his name, stood in their minds for Viva Emanuele Re d'Italia, long live Emmanuel, King of Italy, the newly placed King of Italy. And this particular chorus from Nabucco, which is the Vapensiero, um, it talks about the Hebrew people uh, coming um, out, of, out of, yet again, out of slavery um, and yearning for a better future. And so it had a very symbolic... Uh, Attachment to, to to the opera, and it was, and, and people would sing it all over. If you go to Italy today, even you sit in an opera house, there are plenty of people who will sing along. It's something really? we'd never do in New York.
0: Yeah,
1: I'd never do it in New York. But the Italians love their opera, and they, and they really did. Certainly in Verdi's day, they would sing along, and this this particular chorus became very well known, and it will be known to our audiences today. It, it, it's a very famous piece. Um, and then the Cunning Little Vixen is just a, a stunningly beautiful opera. Janáček wrote a lot of operas, and he was, his musical style is informed very much by the rhythm of Czech speech. The Cunning Little Vixen is based on a series of um, cartoons that were that were made for a newspaper um, in Prague. And again, when when when
0: you don't often think of music going that route. Exactly. Maybe maybe you know a piece of music will inspire a cartoon, but yes. Um... <laughs> The I reverse think it's isn't unique. very common.
1: I think it's absolutely unique. I can't I can't yeah. think of any other version where you can say where you can look back and say, oh yes. <laughs> Except perhaps the musical The Labner. <laughs> Not exactly symphonic music, but a musical nonetheless. Um but uh Janicek in this opera abandons human speech a little bit to try and find a vocabulary that was more about about the woodland. And um it, the suite itself uh really picks up on all of the Motifs that he creates for, for instance, the frog. Uh, but the suite is really—it really brings together these wonderful motifs that kind of create almost a woodland sensation. Mm. It's a little bit of a tone poem, but it is based on this, this this great opera. And I've wanted to do this piece for a very long time. So that's the first concert that's coming up. Verdi, Max Brook and Janacek.
0: Excellent. So we have five concerts in a season. Yes. We have a big project coming up at the end of the year, and that will cap off uh, our season in May. Um, and it's a concerto competition, which is something we've never done before. Right. Um, is, this some, is this an idea that you've had for a while, or...? Uh, how did, what, what is the origin of, of us getting, we, we're generally a pretty standalone group uh, and we'll be inviting in students and um, young players to audition and play. Right, in, in the exactly.
1: We, um, we feel like, I felt that, that with this extraordinary reception that we've had at the Brooklyn Museum, they've been amazing welcoming us there and they've been very receptive to what we're trying to do. And I just thought it was time to kind of maybe make our mark on the Brooklyn community even stronger. Mm-hmm. And so this is a way of including um, young people. There's an educational side to this, too, which I think is very important. Um, but we are uh, inviting young players who, are, who have not yet reached the age of 20. And then on March 5th and 6th, we will be listening to... Um, we're hoping as many as 60 young people coming into play for us over the course of two days at the South... It's called the South Oxford Space, and that's a space on South Oxford Street in, in uh, the Fort Greene section of, of uh, Brooklyn. And then we will choose three finalists, and those three finalists will come and play with us, play with the orchestra, um, at the last concert, which is on Sunday, May twenty second.
0: Yes, and is this something? So you said the cutoff date for applications. Do you know what that is yet?
1: The cutoff date I think is June twenty. It's either June twenty fourth or twenty fifth. Uh,
0: not June.
1: Not June. January. 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 Okay. I'm so sorry. Okay. All these J months always confuse
0: me. January twenty fourth. Twenty fourth. Yeah. Um, And we'll have information up on our website about that. Yes,
1: and then we will have uh, a fairly um, star-studded panel of of, uh, judges at the end, and they will go away and discuss the three finalists they've heard, and they'll award cash prizes, which we have coming up for this. And um, and the orchestra will have a chance to play two two lovely French pieces. Actually, in that program, we'll be doing the Tombeau de Couperin of Ravel, Mm -hmm. and we'll be doing the Petit Suite of Debussy. So that will. Bookend the the soloist. The soloist will definitely be the draw for that concert, rather than ours for
0: change. But. Um I'm very excited about that. Cool. Um, and I think we should also say, like you mentioned, the Brooklyn Museum. We are new to the Brooklyn Museum. We are uh, in our.
1: We're about to start our third season there. Third season. And as you rightly said earlier, we're about to start our 42nd season mm-hmm. as a as a as a group as an as orchestra as a
0: symphony. Yeah. Um, and moving to the Brooklyn Museum was a pretty big deal for us. We, uh, had been playing at St. Anne's in, uh, Brooklyn Heights for many years. Um, and moving to Brooklyn museum has given us a wonderful new audience, uh, in addition to the many regulars that we've always had at our performances. Um, and it's also a really great connection to the local Brooklyn art community. Yes. Um, we've been able to integrate our performances into, uh, art that is on display at the museum itself and connect the work that we do to many of the exhibits. Um, and so that's part of, uh, we're continuing that here with the, um, with the concerto competition.
1: Yes, very much. That's been a very exciting thing. We did a concert uh, last Easter Sunday and uh, that was a theme concert. And um, the theme of that really was the, the sort of the transition of the soul at the moment of death. It seems very dark to talk about in a podcast in a room like this. It seems very dark, but in fact, it was, it was a
0: pretty dark concert.
1: It was a pretty dark concert. But um, what was most exciting was that we worked with um, with one of the young guys uh, who works in their education department at the museum, and he put together a slideshow. I think of something like twenty images from the museum's collection which in various cultures and really right across the board, there was nothing specifically Christian, nothing specifically Jewish about any of this, or it was really very much a, a very broad spectrum of um, an artistic realization of that moment, that sort of that transition from life to death. Mm. And we brought, we uh, projected that behind the orchestra as we were playing one of the pieces that we were doing. And I just, I, I couldn't help thinking what a remarkable um, opportunity that was for us to be able to really think about the music that we play and to create a visual backdrop to it. You, you, you can worry a little bit about the idea that, uh, that making a visual representation of something kind of forces an audience to think of something in a certain way. I have very uh, problematic uh, views, for instance, about Fantasia, this mm. classic American experience. And I've been teaching kids long enough to know that many of them who've seen it um, have heard that music in a way that—or just they've heard it, would never have heard it otherwise. But it bothers me a little bit that perhaps dancing hippos is not the best way to remember a particular piece of music. So I worry a little bit about Those that. Those
0: images do stay in your head yes, forever. Yes, how
1: can they not? I mean, it's like, <laughs> don't think of the pink elephant in the room. What are you going to do?
0: Or the brooms.
1: Yes. <laughs> uh, so I worry a little bit about that. But at the same time, here we are at a, at a really a world-class museum. You know, we, we are...
0: And we're about to play a, a piece that was inspired by our cartoons. So images do exactly. reflect... Yeah. The, exactly. the work that we're, yeah. we're doing, or music that we're playing.
1: We also now officially have an artist in residence, Katie Didrickson, who is um, a remarkable uh, young woman who came to the orchestra a couple of years ago just to draw us in, in action. And she has made some some wonderful works and some, some I, for me personally, inspiring works about uh, the notion of movement, how you can capture movement.
0: She on. has a very interesting way of, of uh, creating her artwork, right? She... If I remember correctly, she um, doesn't actually look at the page. She listens to the music and watches us right. and lets the, the movement of a piece um, kind of draw her or move her hand where it, yes. where it may.
1: Blind contour drawing is what, is what, what she calls it, which is I, I, a standard, I think, um, description of what the, the kind, that kind of work. But then she takes that as a basis and then creates uh, paintings, oil paintings, large canvases that she's done, but even in the large canvases i just i mean i think it's extraordinary how how she's managed to really capture the movement i mean i see the violinist in the orchestra i see we have a, a great principal bass and i see her movements in in the orchestra i'm waving my arms around madly conducting wagner and i can see myself doing it in this in this painting i saw amazing. the one that
0: she did of you and it <laughs> You know, it's very abstract, but it, it you can definitely see you in it yes. and, and the kind of gestures the that
1: gestures, you make. So, and, and not, not just a gesture kind of separate it, but real movement. It's really quite an extraordinary achievement. So she's working as well this year in our publicity, but we're kind of commercializing her art, sorry to say, but um, she's happy about it and she is now officially our Artist-in-Residence. That's wonderful. So I think the fact that we're in a museum, we have an Artist-in-Residence, we're doing the kind of music that connects, I think is very, very exciting.
0: There's one more thing I was uh, hoping to ask you about today. Fire away. Um, I think that a lot of people who come to see an orchestra perform um, are intrigued by how we manage to fit it all together in such a way that it produces an interesting and uh, pleasant sound mm-hmm. um, instead of clashing horribly. <laughs> um, I actually don't know anything about how a conductor approaches music. I know a lot about how musicians do, um, and I'll be talking to people about that later, but how do you approach um a new piece of music and and prepare it for us to rehearse.
1: I think if I go back even further than that a little bit to how I think about the season, mm. or just a concert, a whole concert. So we talked a little bit before about um, about this first program that we're putting together. Um, I have a number of things that I have to think of. First of all, first of all, I have to I have to have a good sense in my mind of who's going to come back each season. We're a community orchestra.
0: Who the regulars are.
1: Who are the regulars? Can I depend on having? 14 first violins, or is it going to be eight this year? I mean, it's mm-hmm. never usually quite that dramatic, but those are the things that can change.
0: And there is fluctuation sometimes, yes, but, yeah. but there is a core, yeah. yeah.
1: Even during the course of a season, there's a fluctuations. We, we, um, we're we never quite sure who's going to be there. So that's that's a real concern. Can, you know? Do I, do I have the people that can do the work? And that means typically a strong string section. That means typically uh, at least two of all the woodwinds, t- four French horns, three trumpets, three trombones, tuba, at least a timpani. I need to know that my harpist, when we hire her, that she can come. Uh, all those sort of practical things, just in the, in, in, in the programming. It doesn't do me any good, for instance, to program a piece that uses a contrabassoon, which is an unusual instrument, uh, if if I can't find one. Or if, there's, or if she has to play six notes, it doesn't make any sense to do that. So I look at the program on, on a logistical level, practical level. Um, my next thing is, okay, so I've got a handful of pieces for this particular moment in our season. What's most fun for the orchestra? That's my first thing. Thank you. <laughs> What's most challenging for the orchestra, too, because I think you'll agree that I, I never program music it's, that's easy. You
0: absolutely do not. <laughs> you keep us on our toes. And I think
1: that's important, too. And I think, um, you know, I have the experience behind me now to say that people keep coming back for more of that. And that's that's also very exciting and very satisfying thing. Then it has to be interesting for the audience. I don't particularly want my audiences coming in. and feeling like it's yet more music because I think that the world is so full of, of noise that goes on and it's very easy to, to tune it out. So I don't want my audiences to have the, the opportunity to tune out what we do. So there are two things we have to do. We have to make sure that we play it well and we have to make sure that it's challenging enough for them, interesting enough for them, enjoyable enough for them to engage so that this notion of me, of art in general, I think whether you're looking at a painting or you're reading a book or you're listening to music, an audience has to be a willing member of a two-way street. We, we go down the street giving the The product as you said earlier on they have to come a great word for it (laughs) and they have to come back willing to willing to buy into it yeah yeah and um
0: and as a and as a community orchestra um like we really do have to uh evolve and and keep our community interested right right, right. which is, is slightly different from like the New York Phil is, is
1: doing. Yes, everything. I think they have a different challenge because their challenge is a monetary one. Mm-hmm. We we survive on a very very tiny budget Com- compared to what we do. It's a very small budget. So that's not really our, our our worry. Our worry is that people just won't come back. You know, we really do want them to be there, and we've been getting almost full houses to every concert at the Brooklyn Museum. It's really quite extraordinary. Really,
0: since we moved.
1: Yeah, but to get back to your your question about about preparing music, so I have to make sure that even though it's difficult, it's manageable. I had a conducting teacher once who I loved. His name was was, uh, uh, Jack Jarrett. And Jack always used to say to me, a community orchestra is one of the few things that's greater than the sum of its parts. Hmm. And I always thought that was kind of a curious and funny thing to say. But I will say that I completely understand because there are people in the orchestra who really have no business playing janicek or Prokofiev or Richard Strauss or the other things that I throw at them. But there are enough people who can, and there are enough people who can play bits of what they need to do, and there are enough people who are, who are intelligent enough to know when to back off a little bit if they can't quite manage that. A very important in skill. Seconds. Yes, a very important skill.
0: I'm, I'm not going to do this <laughs> next half page. I'm just going to look like I'm doing it. I'm going to count. It. Yes, I'm yes. going to busy.
1: Count it, and then come back to <laughs> when, I, when I can come back in again. That's great. That's yeah. fine. But that means that there's a tremendous amount of support, which I think is wonderful. I think there are people in the orchestra who really learn all the time and get better all the time, just simply for being next to people that, that are a tiny bit better than they are. And so that's
0: certainly part of the appeal. Playing in the orchestra is, is not just maintaining you know, the fact that you can play the instrument, right. but um, continuing to it. learn. Yeah.
1: I hope so. That's, mm-hmm. a, that's certainly a big goal.
0: Thank you very much for oh, it's a great pleasure. Thank speaking you. with me today.
1: My absolute
0: pleasure. That's Nick Armstrong. He's our Conductor and Artistic Director of the BSO. Check brooklynsymphonyorchestra.org for more episodes of this podcast as our season progresses. You can also purchase tickets there for our upcoming concert on the 25th of October at the Brooklyn Museum. I'm Sarah O'Keefe, and thank you for listening.